It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky Tom. How are you today? Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, cause it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Now, when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well, then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is... Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus And if we don't act quick and social distance It will mire us in a stretch of quarantine That lasts until July A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better... (coughs) Now back in 1918, influenza had its run But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized Oh, Superman! Transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July A superbad, transmittable, superbad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus Superbad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus
welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, my guest this hour is a novelist, physician, and psychiatrist. He's written eight nonfiction books. He's uh, also written eight novels and novellas, and he has a new book out called Assassin's Lullaby, which is, uh, let's see, I, I saw a really good... Uh, Somebody coined a phrase that I uh, especially liked, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to fi- find it. In any event, um, my guest's name is Mark Rubenstein. He joins me by phone. Mark, good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. And and I think the phrase was um, smart, sleek, thriller. That's what it was. <laughs> I wanted to squeeze that in before we got talking. Um, this is a story about uh, an assassin for for the Mossad. Yes, he he was originally with the Mossad. He left about ten years uh, prior to the novel's opening, and uh, uh, because of his own tragic past, uh, really had no. Uh, professional qualifications to do anything other than kill, and he became a mob hitman for various uh, and sundry mob factions in and around the New York City area. So uh, the novel picks up really uh, ten years after he left the Mossad, and while he's been uh, and and after he spent ten years as a uh, as a contract killer and uh, has a very checkered past and a very conflicted present. And off we go. Well, why um, why put his backstory with the Mossad and not uh, the CIA or or uh, FSB? Well, I, it, the Mossad is a more mysterious organization, at ah. least as to most of us Americans, and. Uh, uh, also, it fit in with his the tragedy of his past, uh, in which uh, his uh, parents and his young wife, uh, uh, who was pregnant with their child, was killed by a suicide bomber on a bus in Jerusalem, and that really was the the impetus for him to become, in part at least, who he is and uh, lead him to do what he does. So I I just felt that that was a uh, if you will, a more tragically tainted past uh, than would otherwise be the case. You know, I was I was going to ask you. A, a lot of times, I talk to people who will write um, uh, novels that have spy elements or or that brush up against uh, spy organizations and operations, and I'm always curious because I know writers like to do a little bit of research and see if they can't make the scenarios they portray, especially the ones based in reality, as as uh, true to life and realistic as possible. How do you research stuff that involves organizations that are, in the case of Mossad, as you put it, mysterious, or at the very least, top secret? Well, first you have to use above all your own imagination, and, and uh, you know uh, a, a good deal of what I write isn't necessarily uh, bound by factual uh, truths. 
but, you know, they call it the information highway for very good reasons. I go on the Internet and you look up uh, whatever it is, and you will find out a great deal about virtually any organization or uh, criminal conspiracy. Um, I, uh, I use the Internet quite liberally, and uh, it, that in combination with uh, what I imagine to be uh, can eventuate in a pretty compelling story that that uh, has the ring of truth. Uh, you know, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. That was famously said by Albert Camus. And uh, I don't necessarily stick to the absolute hardcore reality when I'm writing fiction, uh, just enough to make it seem plausible. And, uh, uh, you know, fiction is what it is, and it, it allows me a great deal of uh, license. Fictional license uh, is akin to poetic license. You, you just uh, take what you know, you expand upon that, and, and you come up with something that at least sounds credible and feels credible, and above all, is an interesting uh, and compelling read for the reader. Well, you know, I always, uh, um, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of... Um well, I love mysteries, but I'm also a fan of historic fiction. Mm-hmm. And and I always find it fascinating when these these fictional, very creative stories are set against a very realistic and uh, confirmable backdrop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, you're really uh, talking in the realm of a guy like Steve Berry, who uh, I know quite well. And who does write historical fiction? He'll take people like like Lincoln and Washington, and he will uh, use uh, the time during which they were alive, and uh, even at times have them in his novels. Uh, you know, uh, once you get that that core of reality in there, you can build around it in the most fantastical ways, and that, that's what he does. And uh, that's what really, in a sense, almost any fiction writer does. Uh, we take a reality or a, a core bit of reality and we expand upon it, uh, just weaving whatever fictional characters and uh, thoughts and feelings uh, uh, and conflicts there are. And, of course, conflict is the heart of virtually any drama or, or novel or, for that matter, any uh, performing uh work of art. I, I'll never forget, I was once talking with David Mamet, and he said, you know, if, if Hamlet comes home from school and his father asks him, how was school? And Hamlet says, oh, it was fine, Dad. That's boring, you know. But if Hamlet thinks that his, uh, his uh, uncle killed his father and is sleeping with his mother, well, that's a conflict, and that's where the thing takes off, and it becomes interesting. <laughs> Um, Mark, when you're crafting a story like this, uh, like this new novel, Assassin's Lullaby, what comes first for you? Do you come up with characters and and then figure out what kinds of things are likely to happen to them, like this uh, contract killer, or do you have um, a story first and then cast it like a movie? You know, it's it's a it's a great question, Tom, and and uh, I'm not sure I can answer it in any absolutely coherent way. Yeah, I ask uh, a lot of writers this question, and you know, it it varies even within a, a particular writer's body of work. 
Yeah, I, I find that uh, with different books, it, it uh, starts out differently or works out differently. I, I would say this: I have a uh, in my mind some sort of a concept, and um, I may have the nidus of a story. I may know where it begins, and I may uh, at some point have a pretty solid idea of where it's going to end up. But I have absolutely no idea how it's going to get there, and uh, the the journey from the beginning to the end is is really the hard work of the novel. And I, I've always viewed uh, novels as organic things. At least the creation of a novel is an organic uh, enterprise. By organic, I mean it, it sort of takes on a life of its own, and it, it, it can move in its own direction without your necessarily being consciously aware of it. To wit, I can give you an example. I, I'll be writing, uh, uh, filling in the, the gap between the beginning and the end, and on page 100 I have a character do or say something, that won't fit with what was on page 30 or 35. And I find that I have to go back and redo page 30 or 35 because uh, to make it fit with what happens on page 100. And in a sense, the character and or the story uh, has evolved. And uh, in, in that sense, it, it has an organicity to it that um, uh, makes me realize that there there are things, there's an ebb and flow within my own mind that I'm not even necessarily aware of that took me from one point to another and changed the arc of the story. So it's a complicated process, and I don't know that I can really pinpoint it down to what, you know, do I pick out a character first or a plot line first? It may be a little of both. Um, I know the character of uh, Eli Degan in, in Assassin's Lullaby fascinated me because he's mysterious at the same time. He has a soul. He feels guilt for some of the things that he's done, uh, even though they're perfectly understandable on some level. And I guess I just took it from there. And, and of course, some of your own feelings get enmeshed with all of this, some of your own conflicts. And uh, you know, any writer who, who denies that uh, he or she isn't a part and parcel of the protagonist is not telling you the truth. Well, in this book, Assassin's Lullaby, um, Eli, uh, how do you pronounce it, Dagon? Uh, Dagon, yeah. Dagon. Yeah. Um, he starts out with a cause that, that could be considered just or, or righteous and and then just kind of works his way away from it. Yes, he does. He he evolves, uh, and of course he rationalizes because he, he feels that as a contract killer, he only kills criminals and evil men, and, and his modus vivendi, so to speak, is to uh, rid the planet of evil people. Of course, uh, he also realizes that in doing so, he's leaving a wake of destruction and uh, sadness and, and uh, grief behind him in the form of uh, uh, a wife or uh, children of of the people that he ends up murdering and and uh, that's clearly explicated in the novel um as well as guilt that he feels for having survived his own family because he was not on the bus that was uh, bombed by a suicide bomber along with his family uh, when that happened uh, years ago so uh again it's a complicated process and he goes from uh, having, as you put it, a, uh, a a just and righteous cause, and making righteous kills, to then doing things that are not so righteous, but at least he's taking out evil people. 
More with author Mark Rubenstein straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom general stuff listen I have a legal question what is it mom I just got a call from the water company apparently your father has not been paying the bill I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now can you believe it actually I can't so listen We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with author Mark Rubenstein straight ahead. When you write, um, Mark, are you a very disciplined and organized writer that works from a, an outline, or do you sort of binge write? I guess it's a combination of the two. I, you may have heard this uh, from other authors. Uh, there are two types of uh, writers. There are the plotters uh, who, who plot everything uh, out in advance by in, by virtue of uh, elaborate outlines, sometimes uh, chapter and verse. And there are the pantsers, uh, those who fly by the seat of their pants. And uh, I guess I'm a combination of plotter and pantser. What I'll do is I'll have I'm organized in that I will uh, sit down uh, before I sit down and, and really. Uh, begin constructing a novel, I will write down a series of random thoughts around a certain, uh, orbiting around a certain concept, and uh, I may end up with five or ten pages of that, but really it's not uh, a sufficient outline. It doesn't take me uh, plot point by plot point down to, uh, through the, the, the story. And then I'll just uh, sit down and start writing and see where it goes. So it's a combination of the two for me. I know some people um, will will uh, they will not only outline uh, chapter by chapter, but they'll even have a short precis of each chapter. They can end up with a sixty or seventy page outline, and then it's just a matter of filling in the blanks, almost like paint by numbers, you know. Uh, that that's not I'm that disciplined. I am not. <laughs> can can you pretty much write on demand if you parse some time to to spend writing? Um, can you pretty much just sit down and call it up? Uh, sometimes I can. It it really uh, it varies from day to day. Only this morning, uh, I, I'm a morning person. I I get up at five by five thirty or so. I'm I'm at the computer and. This morning, I was having a difficult time. I was on a new chapter of a, of a sequel to Assassin's Lullaby, and I was saying, gee, where do I go from here? And I, <clears throat> I couldn't come up with anything that felt viable and sound. And finally, after about 20 minutes, I came up with a few sentences, and uh, that, that seems to be the beginning of something that I could take it, take it down the road a little bit, but I'm not sure. Uh, at other times, I can just sit down and and it it flows like lava. It really just right down the mountainside and and um, it takes on a coherence uh, and, and a momentum that I could never have otherwise anticipated. I, uh, uh, I I share this quote with a lot of writers that I talk to from Stephen King, who was asked if he wrote to a schedule or to a muse, and he said. Oh, always to the muse. But fortunately, the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he, he, of course, he's about pr- probably the most prolific writer uh, on the planet these days. Uh, Do you know who you know, Debbie Maycumber is? I'm sorry, who? Debbie Maycumber. Yes, I've heard the name, but I, I'm not familiar well, with Well, she's that. a very prolific writer as well. Uh-huh. Very different kinds of, of writing. It's more, you know, a little Cabot Cove 
you know, community interactions and gossip mm-hmm. and, you know, those kinds of things. But she writes a couple of books a year and has been doing so for many, many years. And I asked her on the show if um, who she thought had written more books, her or Stephen King. And she said, well, you know, I think I probably have more titles, but I think Stephen has written more words. <laughs> and Mark, I, you know, I, I, I sat there, I, I was a little bit dumbfounded because I thought, who does the math on this? Well, obviously writers do. Oh yeah, some writers keep score. Uh, they keep score. <laughs> they keep score of uh, the number of books they've written, the number of books someone in their genre has written. Uh, some writers go to Amazon three or four times a day to see where their books rank. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, in terms of sales, um, there there are many hangups that many writers have. Uh, I, I try to avoid going uh, to Amazon and looking and seeing where where you know a, a particular book may go. Uh, if I do go, it can be very disappointing and very disheartening. So I I avoid it as best I can. <laughs> now you wrote um, the Mad Dog trilogy. Yes. Um, but aside from that, are most of your books standalone or? Is there a series in the works somewhere in your books? Uh, except for the Mad Dog trilogy, which follows this one character, Roddy Dolan, through three separate novels, uh, uh, everything else has been a standalone novel. I'm not really sure why. I think people who write series tend to sell more books. But uh, if I want to invoke the muse uh, analogy, uh, the muse takes me to wherever it does, and and I, you know, once the book is out there on the shelf on its own, uh, it it it, ha- it lives and dies on its own, and I just go on to the next one. You know, uh, uh, I in in some respects it's it's uh, easier, and in others it's harder to write a series. Uh, when you're doing a series, you know the character, you know uh, what his or her predilections are. It's just a matter of figuring out new uh, situations into which throw, uh, you're going to throw the character. Um, standalones, uh, you've got to come up with not only a new character, but uh, entirely different situations. Although, you know, Scott Turo, I was once talking with him, and he said to me in, in his firm belief that every novelist really only writes one book because the same searing considerations and concerns are expressed through every single novel uh, in in different ways by the same writer so and I'm not sure that uh, I, I think he may have a, a, a real valid point there um, that's interesting because it, your books seem by and large very different from each other yeah, I think they are, and uh, although there's always a protagonist who gets into trouble, uh, there's always a conflict of some sort, uh, there's always danger that accrues, uh, and that endangers uh, either the protagonist's life or his or her well-being. Uh, but yet, yeah, they but they're different. I mean, one is about a physician, another is about a writer, uh, another is about a psychiatrist uh, who, who uh, uh, hears a patient uh, 
tell him something that he shouldn't hear because it's mob connected. So there, there's there's always a commonality, but there are, are are considerable differences as well. But I guess if I had to really winnow it down to what common themes uh, or theme there may be in, uh, through the novels, it's uh, that of the protagonist being in danger and having to claw and fight his or her way uh, through the danger and uh, to survive and and prosper. It seems like in a lot of novels, it's it's become, at least in the last couple of decades, um, an important part of storytelling that the lead character be flawed in some way and that redemption plays a part of the the tale yeah either redemption or some kind of growth i i yeah that's I, a better way to put it mark yeah growth i i i try to have a, a any character that i have grow in terms of self-awareness and in, in terms of realization as to uh, what flaws he or she has or uh, and and uh, in the effort to overcome that flaw which is part and parcel of the conflict um, or should i say the conflict brings out something in the character that uh, the character didn't know he had uh, and and uh, by the end of the novel i i hope to see a character who has grown i guess that goes along with my own background as a psychiatrist because part of what you do in psychiatry you try and help the patient grow and and enhance his or her awareness of what's been going on in 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 the person's head and uh what conflict uh, has been bedeviling the person and uh, by a process of growth uh hopefully he or she can overcome that deficit or deficiency and go on and and lead a happier life it's tough to do uh but yeah, thankfully in fiction you can make almost anything happen you can kill <laughs> off who you want to kill you you can uh save who you want to save and and uh you can have your protagonist be who you want the protagonist to be yeah i think one of my one of my favorite little tricks was killing a character off and then finding out that the segment where the the character was killed was someone else's dream <laughs> yeah. Speaking of killing characters, you know, Stephen King famously said, kill your darlings, kill your darlings. What he meant, uh, at least in my interpretation of that, is don't fall in love with what you've written. Uh, be ready to revise and edit and cut and scrap either a character or a scene or, or a patch of dialogue. Don't fall in love with your own words. You know, for most... Um for most writers, um, it's a, it's a very solitary thing, and 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 I wonder, Mark, do you enjoy the the part of getting out and promoting a book, doing interviews like this, doing readings, doing book signings, and that sort of thing? Do you like interacting with people and getting their feedback? Yeah, I, I I do. I I find that um, you're right. The, the writing itself is solitary. Uh, every morning between five and uh, five thirty and about ten, 
I am alone. I'm alone with my thoughts and and with my uh, my attempts, at least, at at creating something. And uh, I appreciate the quietness of the house. The dogs don't bother me. Uh, uh, my wife sleeps a few hours beyond where I'm up. Uh, you know, she's up at six thirty or seven. Uh, at which point, I'm hopefully you know in the middle of of uh, uh, hopefully a, a creative surge. <laughs> You've already but created a bubble by then. I, I I hope so. <laughs> in any event, uh, yeah, I I do enjoy the interviews and uh, the getting out. Uh, some of it can be tedious, especially well these since the pandemic hit and there's much less traveling and there's more of the Zoom and telephone, uh, such as you and I are talking. Uh, it's a lot easier in, back in 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 the uh, pre pre COVID. Uh, there was a lot more traveling involved, and that can get it can wear and yeah, tear on you would, after a while. Yeah, I, I would think that that would be tough. And um, of course, uh, COVID has created other difficulties for oh, yeah. uh, for writers and uh, and for publishers. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm always fascinated by the creative process, Mark. Are where where do the ideas come from? Do you I, I don't know see see a little snippet on the news or or a little a, a line in a movie or something someone has said at a cocktail party if you're lucky enough to go to cocktail parties. <laughs> um, if, if where where do these ideas uh, germinate? I can only quote. Arthur Miller, in that regard, when asked <laughs> where do his ideas come from, he said, if I knew, I'd go there every day. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I, you've already hit the nail uh, pretty solidly right on the head. I mean, it can be almost anything. It can be a snippet of conversation. It can be something that strikes you in a movie you're watching or a TV program. It can be a news item. Um, uh, Harlan Coben uh, uh, frequently scans the internet on all kinds of sites looking for ideas. Uh, he had one novel where uh, a woman uh, uh, was creating a false pregnancy, and and uh, that is, she was portraying herself as being pregnant. And he said he actually found a site where they sell. Uh, uh, false bellies so that a woman can strap this thing on and look as though she's six or seven or eight months pregnant, uh, which, uh, you know, why once someone would want to do that is beyond me, but uh, what the heck, it takes uh, it takes uh, many people to, to, you know, form a city. So um, the ideas can come from anywhere, and I must say that to some extent it is a bit of a mystery. Um, Freud once said that uh, while he felt he had a fairly solid understanding of people in terms of their psychologic processes, the creative process mystified him. He really couldn't understand where the creative uh, impulses come from and how they formulate themselves and rise to the fore. He was, of course, alluding to the unconscious mind, that portion of the mind of which we're not aware on a, on a moment-to-moment, day-by-day basis. And um, there, too, I, I think that Scott Turo was, was sort of uh, in the ballpark when he said he feels that every writer sort of writes one novel. He just does it in different ways uh, at different times uh, through different protagonists and different plot lines. I think that if you look for the common thread in many writers' um, uh, uh, oeuvre, you'll, you'll find 
common themes and threads, which seem to be the the issues that are most conflictual for them in their uh, in their inner psyches. So. Um, yeah, you, you know. Uh, by the way, going back to what you mentioned before about uh, uh, productive uh, people—people people who write two, three novels a year—I was once uh, interviewing uh, Stuart Woods, who writes four novels a year, wow. and he's been doing—he's been doing that for for years. And um, when I asked him how do how do you manage to do that, he said, "Well, I'm just very prolific." <laughs> <laughs> You know, he put it very succinctly. <laughs> you know, another prolific writer that comes to mind who was on my show several times is Mary Higgins Clark. Oh, yes. And yes. I I asked her once because she had admitted that she wasn't very good with technology and <clears throat> often had uh, one of her children, a, a son, I believe, who was actually keyboarding her her books, uh, you uh-huh. know, on a on a laptop or something. And I said, but yet your books have um, elements of technology in them. Mm-hmm. And I said, how do you how, how do you know about those things? She said, I got a guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we we. I I think pretty much every writer, especially in this day and age with technology being what it is, having so completely suffused our lives. Um, uh, we all have a, a guru of some sort. I mean, I mean uh, Michael Connolly uh, has lawyer friends who advise him uh, oh, sure. uh, about the Mickey Haller, Haller books. Um, uh, he also has a, uh, a, tech, a tech guru. I have a tech guru who I can uh, call up on demand and, and just ask, hey, uh, is it possible to geolocate somebody uh, if he's using a, sat, a satellite phone, otherwise known as a sat phone, or uh, can a burner phone be triangulated? You know, stuff like that. Right, right, exactly. Uh, because the, these issues are, are now, you know, if you write a contemporary thriller, uh, you you have to use some technology because uh, no longer do you go to uh, does your protagonist go to a phone booth and call somebody up i mean you know, well, everybody yeah. has everybody has cell phones and and uh laptops and all this stuff uh only yesterday i was walking down the street and i couldn't count the number of people who were walking down the street and who almost bumped into me because they were walking toward me looking at their cell phones and right, they weren't right. watching where they were going i mean it's ubiquitous so you have to include these things and you can't you just can't be au courant on everything so you you have to depend on i'm fortunate i have a medical background a psychiatric background i have some uh, legal background in the sense that i did a lot of forensic psychiatry so i know how courtrooms work and how tactics well, in, in the you court. probably so, remember then that uh not so very long ago dna was considered too expensive to cultivate and use in yes. court but juries began sort of demanding it. Absolutely, absolutely. And readers today demand, uh, I mean, if you wrote a novel today in which you have a, 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 a your, your protagonist go into a phone booth to call somebody or, you know, stop off at somebody's apartment or house and say, can I use your phone? I mean, it, it would. It, they'd take the book and they'd toss it aside. They'd say, this is so outmoded, <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know. See, you have to stay uh, somewhat current with uh, where technology has taken us. And um, 
I have a difficult time, though, Mark, seeing Sherlock Holmes with a cell phone. Yes, that 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 uh, would not work. And <laughs> you know, if you're reading uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, you have to uh, you have to bow down to. Uh, but the it exists in some of the television incarnations recently, and the film incarnations of Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Um, you know, he's he's running around with a cell phone. He's getting text messages, and and yeah. and I, I don't know. I. He's a character born of a particular time to me. Absolutely. It's time-bound, and, and it has its own level of charm. Uh, a good friend, David Morell, uh, wrote two novels that took place in 1855, 1854, uh, in London. And um, uh, he got buried in, in the Victorian era, and he said, I'm having Victorian withdrawal now. He had to come back into the, into the uh, you know, our, our common era. Well, I and, love the drawing room mysteries. Who, oh, yeah, whoever yeah. wrote them, you know, whether it's uh, Agatha Christie or Arthur mm-hmm. Conan Doyle, or uh, although his aren't drawing room mysteries the way some of the other writers uh, did. You know, where, where you have all the suspects in a room at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, those are sometimes called closed room mysteries. Um, yeah. Sometimes the others are called cozy mysteries. Um, yeah, I, I've often been struck I've, at many author talks. Uh, I've been asked, uh, how did you think of this mystery? And I'd say, it's not really a mystery, it's a thriller. Do you know the difference between a mystery and a thriller? That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't want to bore your listeners, but... Um, um, I, I can very succinctly define the difference between a mystery and a thriller, although thrillers often have some elements of mystery in them, and, and a uh, mystery may have some element of thriller. A mystery is essentially, essentially a puzzle, a whodunit, where, wherein the writer, uh, usually it begins with a body being discovered, and uh, the writer uh, drops certain hints, and the entire scenario is to see who did it, and for that person to be... Uh, discovered and and apprehended they can be closed mysteries or open mysteries uh an open mystery is where uh you you know uh who did it right at the beginning sort of like the colombo ones and the closed right, ones is right. the, the reader doesn't know who did it a thriller on the other hand involves a protagonist whose very life and well-being are in danger and is usually a clock ticking and uh, the thriller involves danger above all to the protagonist so those are the major differences between mysteries and thrillers. And as I said, there can be an element of each and the other, but um, uh, there is pretty much a, a difference. By the way, there are so many types of thrillers. There are domestic thrillers. There are uh, urban thrillers. There are international thrillers. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, More with author Mark Rubenstein's. <laughs> Well, 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From- 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Mark Rubenstein straight ahead. We're almost out of time, and I have sure. uh, a couple, three questions I want to try and squeeze in very, very quickly. One is is um, how you got started writing, and, and if there are writers... Um, that you especially like or maybe perhaps have informed your writing and um, what's coming up next for you. And then, of course, I always uh, want guests to have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. So feel free to share a website if you'd like. Sure. Um, What I... I got started writing because in psychiatry, uh, as a resident, I had to uh, prepare case histories of patients that I was seeing or had seen, and in so doing, I I thought that uh, psychiatry is a unique medical specialty in that people come to you and tell you stories. They tell you about their lives, and in reporting these these stories, uh, I often resorted to quoting the patients exactly, that is, giving them dialogue and Many of my fellow residents said, you know, when you uh, report a case history, it has a novelistic uh, quality to it. So I, I uh, experimented a little bit, and eventually I began writing uh, first nonfiction and then fiction. But even in nonfiction, I was, uh, uh, in giving examples, I would uh, uh, put in dialogue and, and have uh, uh, interesting stories of case histories to illustrate a certain medical or psychiatric point. Um, what was the other part of your question about uh, uh, writers that you like or, or, oh, yeah. or who may have informed your work a little? Yeah, Don Winslow is one. Uh, he he has written some fabulous books. Uh, uh, he really is more of a, a, a verbal stylist uh, than anyone I've ever known. The other writer who really has influenced me enormously and whose books I've enjoyed uh, is... Uh, Dennis Lehane, his book, Mystic River, was such a phenomenal novel, and uh, as good as the movie was, it doesn't begin to compare uh, with the, the novel in terms of the depth of characters and and uh, the way he, he constructed this whole unity. <laughs> Mark, I'm tempted to say, imagine that. <laughs> imagine that. A movie that doesn't live up to... Uh the the way the story was told yeah, in yeah, the original yeah. format. Although, although Mystic River as a movie was quite good, uh, you know, I think Clint Eastwood did a great job directing it, and, and uh, it was very well done. But it doesn't compare to the book. Uh, the book just has a resonance and a depth that uh, I think is impossible for the film medium to match. Uh, but I would say Winslow and Lehane are the two writers who have most uh, impressed me, and to some other extent, have influenced me. And and finally, um, what's next, and do you have a website? Yeah, what's next is uh, a, a novel uh, called Downfall. It's, it's uh, being published by Ocean View uh, Publishing Company based in Sarasota, Florida. It's about a psychiatrist who is uh, listening to his patient, and in the fourth session the patient says, hey, what we talk about here is confidential, isn't it? Well, well of course it is. Well, uh, well, do you want to know who clipped uh, Boris Levenko? 
that was a murder that had occurred only two days earlier in the Brighton Beach section of Brooklyn, uh, Boris Levenko having been a, a Russian mobster. And uh, suddenly the psychiatrist realizes that this young man who's in treatment with him has a family, uh, a father who is a mob boss and many associates, and God knows what they're thinking this young man tells the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist suddenly realizes that he could be in the uh, in the crosshairs of of the Russian mob. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that's uh, coming next, uh, and uh, I have a website. It's just Mark Rubinstein, M A R K R U B I N S T E I N hyphen author a u t h o r dot com. And oh. that's where anybody who, who's interested can find me. Well, Mark, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That was uh, Mark Rubenstein, author of Assassin's Lullaby. He uh, has... Uh, been a novelist, physician, and psychiatrist. He's written eight nonfiction books, eight uh, novels and novellas, um, and uh, his latest is Assassin's Lullaby. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. <laughs> Another five-minute mystery. An anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests, George Taylor, pauses while eating his dessert. Mmm, best lemon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. Oh, really? I wish my wife could do as well. Hey, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head is practically in your plate. I guess he's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Sam, it's dreadful. I'd better shake him. Sam, Sam! Great guns, he's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker of the Homicide Division, and this is one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Hmm, might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Hmm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Wh who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. You mind telling me what happened? I guess not. I'm so shocked. I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you served for dinner. Well, uh, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom. And then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, and I served him coffee. But I don't see how this could mean anything. Just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, yes he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm-hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I found he's had a heart attack. Yeah, that'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief. Can't say as I do. Neither do I. Let's look in this kitchen. An orderly person, isn't she? Stacked dishes after each course. Yes, and... Here's the silverware over here. Ah, oh, look. Look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Black? Let me see it. The only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or the perfect murder. But this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? 
Yes, Sergeant Barker. I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. Uh, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yeah, I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. But she forgot to wash one spoon. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Sean Cantwell, Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. We hope you've enjoyed this mini-mystery. The Tom Sumner Program.com. I have to lay low for a while, so I'll be staying here inside. It's too dangerous out in the world. I'll see you on the other side but when I'm in my quarantine. Too high, my heart is aching and I'm missing you. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. We're all in for a bumpy ride.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 